from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'd like to introduce our guest speaker this evening, Air Marshal Sabaz North. Uh, Sabaz North was commissioned uh, into the RAF in 1982 and initially flew Wessex helicopters in Northern Ireland. This began an association with the support helicopter force, which would last for 22 years, and four commands, Falkland Islands, Special Forces Flight, Squadron and Station, uh, and all RAF helicopter types. Uh, Subsequently, in 2006, he commanded No. 83 Expeditionary uh, Air Group in the Middle East, before returning to the Ministry of Defence as its Director of Air Resources and Plans. In 2009, he was appointed Air Officer Commanding No. 22 Training Group, following a tour as the Assistant Chief of the Air Staff in the Ministry of Defence. He was then promoted to Air Marshal in 2013 and appointed the RAF's Deputy Commander Capability and Air Member for Personnel and Capability. Air Marshal North was appointed KCB in the New Year's Honours List in 2015. This evening, Sabaz is going to speak about air power and the defence aerospace industry in the whole force era. It needs no more introduction from me. Ladies and gentlemen, Air Marshal Sabaz North. Mr. President, thank you very much indeed for your kind introduction and, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for your warm uh, welcome. Now, it is an indisputable fact that this society has been leading much of the UK and indeed global discourse on air power since the birth of aviation. Consequently, I was delighted to accept the society's invitation to deliver the Sydney CAM lecture for 2015. Inevitably, not all of my messages will be palatable to everyone in the room. But it is my firm belief that only by promoting a constructive debate on key issues which we face together can we begin to sow the seeds of their resolution. Indeed, that is the strength of this society. Previous lectures have followed a common approach. They have all been forward-looking but been informed by our previous experiences. And mine will be no different in this regard. The Sydney Cam lecture for 2015 will critically examine air power and the defence aerospace industry in the whole force era. As we gather here today, just one calendar month after the general election, there is a palpable and perhaps obvious sense of change in the air. It is that sense of imminent, arguably fundamental change which underpins my talk to the society today. The UK defence industry base, and the defence aerospace industry in particular, is economically important to the UK and vital to our national security. In 2013, the annual turnover of the UK defence sector was £22 billion, delivering exports to the value of £9.8 billion, with 85% coming in the defence aerospace area. The average value of defence exports has been £6.5 billion per year over the last decade. In areas where the UK feels that it has a competitive industrial advantage, namely air capabilities and intelligence systems, the forecast global spend is £82 billion per annum over the next eight years. 
To deliver this output, the defence sector directly employs around 162,000 people in the UK and indirectly sustains a further 114,000 jobs through the supply chain. The Ministry of Defence is currently planning to spend an average of £16.4 billion a year over the next 10 years to realise its equipment plan. These are large numbers, underpinning significant reasons as to why this matter is important to the nation. My central hypothesis is that the relationship between UK air power and defence aerospace industry in the whole force area is truly symbiotic. Put simply, if either fails, they will both fail. And with any failure, the UK will lose, perhaps irrecoverably, its competitive advantage on many fronts. For the defence aerospace industry, it may mean difficult conversations with shareholders. For the UK government, it will represent a security and economic challenge. Ensuring that we do not fail is therefore vitally important to each and every one of us as we plan and critically act to secure our, share, our shared future. It is a subject of particular interest to me, of course, as the RAF's MM for Personnel and Capability. In this appointment, it is my executive responsibility to deliver three things, the equipment, the people, and their foundational training from which much of the UK's air power capability is derived. I therefore intend to do everything in my power to positively influence a beneficial outcome for UK air power and its defence aerospace industry. This lecture is part of that effort. I want to convince you to help me to deliver. It is my intention to examine the relationship between UK air power and the defence aerospace industry by considering three key questions. First, where are we now and where are we going to? In doing so, I will touch on our proud heritage, review our situation at the end of the unprecedented 12-year period of enduring stabilisation operations, and look at our progress towards Future Force 2020. The next question, what challenges must we overcome if we are to successfully reach our shared goals? In this section, I will explore the future strategic landscape for security and defence before identifying those key themes which represent our collective challenge and then put this into a Royal Air Force focus with a few illustrative examples. My final question is simply this. How might we overcome those challenges which now face us? This final section will highlight what informed observers feel needs to be done before critically examining the UK's Defence Growth Partnership initiative. Taken together, these three parts are intended to detail what has been a successful journey to date and point to the required direction of travel in the future. Now, keeping the inquisitive and well-informed minds of the society members and guests entertained throughout the next hour will, I'm sure, be one of my key challenges. And unlike the President of Korea, I don't have an anti-aircraft gun on the stage pointing in your direction. <laughs> now, my raison d'etre is simply to give you the Royal Air Force perspective on the matter at hand and invite you to subsequently challenge me in Q&A. Now, there might be a temptation for the Royal Air Force and defence aerospace industry that has supported it to consider that what has hitherto brought success in the skies and in the marketplace, respectively, remains fit for purpose for the challenges of the 21st century. Much will, of course, remain valid, but such an approach, in its broader sense, would be tantamount to resting on the laurels of the past, forgetting what brought that success in the first place, a path that would, most likely, lead to failure in the future. Of course, there is a need to remember our past, draw relevant lessons from it, and let us 
uh, enduring principles guide our future. But we must seek an unrestricted and clear vision of the future, pursue innovation in a determined and timely manner, and underpin this with an institutionalised commitment to the task in hand. This is what drove success then, and it must continue to drive it now. So let us explore some of those factors as we consider the Royal Air Force's situation today and where we are heading tomorrow. It is my contention that UK air power and the defence aerospace industry have come a long way together in just over a century, but our need to work even closer together in the RAS second century is now much greater. If we don't, we will both fail. It was only 27 years between the Wright brothers' first flight in 1903 and Sir Frank Whittle's application for patent of a turbojet engine in 1930. It was only 22 years between the first flight of the Heinkel 178 turbojet-powered aircraft in 1939 and the first manned flight by Yuri Gagarin in 1961. And it was only 12 years between the world's first supersonic flight of a Bell X-1 aircraft piloted by Chuck Yeager in 1949 and the flight of the X-15 by Robert White in 1961. This represents a rapid and significant evolution of defence aerospace technology. So we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves in the current context. Indeed, in comparison with our sister services, such periodicity is very short. It was 97 years between the first steam-powered warship in 1815 and the first diesel-powered merchant vessel in 1912. And it was 79 years between the use of the Lee-Enfield uh, bolt-action rifle in the Crimean War and the issue of the M1 Garand semi-automatic rifle to the US Army in 1937. The fact is that air power development is inherently time-compressed business. The people who deliver the nation's air power exploit technological advancement for competitive advantage. It is what we do, it is difficult to do well, but thus far I think we've been pretty good at it. I want to briefly consider where the RAF finds itself today almost six months after the end of NATO's combat operations in Afghanistan. Some of you may have heard the Chief of the Air Staff use the phrase, air power delivered Af Afghanistan. Not surprisingly, it's a statement that I fully agree with. But I'll just unpick that phrase for a few moments by way of explaining the rationale behind it. The most obvious literal sense is first the strategic air bridge. Despite some well-publicised incidents of tactical frustration, the Royal Air Force successfully sustained the strategic air bridge for nine years to transport the UK's entire fighting force into a contested theatre of military operations that it was over 3,000 miles away and bring them all home again. The figures are simply eye-watering. 270,000 personnel, 51,000 tonnes of freight moved backwards and forwards by RAF air transport aircraft. This includes some 7,384 aeromedical evacuation patients. During this time, with just a couple of exceptions, every frontline operational aircraft type, whether fast jet, multi-engined, rotary or remotely piloted, was committed to Afghanistan at some point. Of those exceptions, the typhoon was holding quick alert in the UK and the Falkland Islands, as well as surging to support operations over Libya all while continuing its incremental development programme, while the Puma helicopter, which was central to the operations in Iraq, is now committed to operations in support of the Afghanistan government. But aircraft are merely platforms. It is the way that they are used and supported by RAF personnel that makes the difference. However, it was the RAF's contribution, in a conceptual sense, 
that is the most significant but often least recognised. UK air power, like that of other nations, made a theatre-wide contribution to the ISAF campaign. One moment it could be operating overhead UK land forces in Helmand province, and then, just 45 minutes later, be over US land forces on the eastern border of Afghanistan, some 350 miles away. And this simple fact hints at air power's true contribution and why the chief says air power delivered Afghanistan. Put simply, it provided the necessary assurance that allowed the combined joint force to configure and to, and to execute operations the way that it did. As retired US Army General Barry McCafferty commented in 2009, coalition air power is the glue holding together the war effort. He was right. Coming closer to my main theme, I now want to highlight the success of the RAF's recapitalization program over the last few years. This is an important point in determining the relative health of a force, and one often overlooked when just pure numbers are considered. I touched on the success of the Airbridge a moment ago, but we should not forget that this was largely achieved with aircraft at the very end of their operational lives, and all of the issues that this naturally throws up. With the introduction of Voyager and latterly the arrival of Atlas aircraft to complement our Globemaster fleet, the UK now has an air mobility force, transport and air-to-air -air refuelling, that is one of the most modern and capable in the world, and the envy of many, including the Chief of the United States Air Force. For those who follow the Defence Aerospace Media closely, you will have spotted recent commentary that detailed the average age of the US Air Force fighter aircraft as being 28 years, and bomber aircraft at 32 years. So in contrast, the Royal Air Force recapitalization sees the service well-placed to lead UK air power into the 21st century. The key question, of course, is what is the direction of travel of that journey? Enduring stabilization operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have been the catalyst to transform the contribution of discrete, arguably niche, intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance platforms into a multifaceted, real or near real-time system of systems. The so-called collect platforms are a key part of this. There are now two operational Reaper squadrons, one in the UK and one in the US. The Air Seeker system with its rivet joint aircraft has already completed its first operational deployment over Iraq. Funding to Reaper, Sentinel and Shadow has been extended until 2018. A decision to reinvest in a wide area maritime and overland surveillance capability in whatever form that may take will no doubt be considered shortly. The Royal Air Force and our fleet air arm partners is operating the UK's first lightning aircraft in the United States as part of the platform's ongoing test, evaluation and development. This platform will contribute to and draw from the I-STAR capability I've just mentioned as well as offering the United Kingdom its first fifth-generation, low-observable combat air capability. Meanwhile, the Typhoon continues its program of weapons integration and development. Storm Shadow is the latest, and plans are advanced to upgrade its radar from mechanical to electronically scanned variant, a theme which I'll return to later. Integrating Lightning and Typhoon operations will be a major focus for UK air power in the years ahead. The use of synthetic facilities, such as the Defence Operational Training Capability, AIR, will be a major contributor to this work. Our immediate aiming point is Future Force 2020. The vector was set during the SDSR of 2010, and we are now halfway along that path. For the RAF, 
the Chief of Air Staff has identified his headline goals to achieve in his command plan 2014. And I'll draw on both to highlight what might lay ahead with the caveat that our thinking may be fundamentally altered by the outcome of this year's review. Earlier I spoke of our enviable quality in terms uh, of our equipment, but I should like now to draw your attention to the issue of quantity. In 1991, at the time of the first Gulf War, the Royal Air Force had 31 fast jet air combat air squadrons. On current plans, this number will reduce to five Typhoon frontline squadrons with the RAF and a share with the Royal Navy in a sixth combat air squadron of Lightning. This is, of course, a plan, but reality often mandates agile adjustment. For example, the decision to amend the Tornado GR4's drawdown profile late last year by delaying the disbandment of two squadron highlighted just this. The reality then was three Tornado GR4 squadrons committed to three operations in three different continents. Today, the Royal Air Force Fast Jet Combat Air Squadron's number eight. But it is for government of the day to decide what represents sufficient combat mass for the demands that are placed on defence, and in particular, for the Royal Air Force. I've already touched on the decisions that will be required in respect of the I-Star Force, and this will be informed by the outcome of the Air I-Star Optimization Study, which has recently concluded under the leadership of the Joint Forces Command. The RAF regular manpower for our Future Force 20 will be 31,500, the current strength at 33,000, and this is all in line with the 2010 review. However, this does not tell the full story. The number of reserves has increased steadily since 2010 and now rests with a total strength of just over 2,100. In fact, we would like the number to increase much further as reserves offer the RAF one way of ensuring that we retain enough organisational agility to meet our potential future challenges. And that brings me to the matter of the whole force. Some have called this a concept, others an approach, but I see it fundamentally as the way the UK armed forces deliver their military outputs in support of national policy objectives. It requires all areas of defence aerospace, many represented here today, to think and act differently to what has gone before. And it is a whole force era that has already started in earnest. Just look how the RAF is delivering UK's air mobility effort at Bryce Norton. Of the 6,600 personnel routinely, routine, routinely employed on the station, one-third, approximately 2,200, is provided by reservists, contractors and civil servants. That's an indication of what is to come. But, of course, not all are convinced. Rusi recently described the whole force as the UK's reform of its military, in which the armed forces changed from being solely composed of a volunteer, professional army, navy and air force, wholly enwrapped within governmental sector, to instead become a partnered arrangement of regular military, regular reserves, volunteer reserves, sponsored reserves and private sector contractors. Now, this description, while comprehensive and factually correct, paints, I believe, a negative connotation of the whole force. It's not a view I share, although I do acknowledge that there will be challenges in its broader implementation. In closing my view of where are we and where are we going, uh, I should like to highlight just a few of the themes contained within the Royal Air Force Command Plan 2014, which are pertinent to what I will discuss subsequently. They are people, output, equipment and reputation. The comparative advantage of the UK Armed Forces has been principally defined by the quality of its people, and this will not change. The command plan, 
the command plan aspires to have a whole force acting together as one. That means new relationships must form and those that already exist be enhanced. And across the whole force, these relationships must be taken to new and unprecedented levels of cooperation. Mutual dependency and trust will be central to these relationships as we go forward. This new relationship is reflected in how we wish to deliver our future outputs. We aspire to be working alongside industry and researchers to enhance capability and support exports. Some may consider that we already do that. We do. But we are considering here is a much more integrated approach from the very outset, recognising that our future is now a shared journey. If we can get this relationship right, then the Defence Aerospace Industry and the Royal Air Force will have set the conditions that maximise our potential to get the right equipment at the right time and at the right price. The command plan calls for an equipment programme where all capabilities are relevant to the future operating environment. Predicting the future is quite difficult, particularly if you're a helicopter pilot. But behind this statement is the implicit requirement for us to work more closely together and in a more agile, responsive way than we have done previously, as we think carefully about how we will identify and procure our future equipment. It is clear to us the approach of the defence aerospace industry is key to the RAF achievement of its command plan goal. And that brings me to the final area, reputation. Fundamentally, it's people who earn reputations, not equipment. But it is the interaction of the people and their equipment which defines success. In our first century, the RAF and defence aerospace industry have done pretty well together. But operating successfully in the defence aerospace sector is challenging. This does not mean we cannot forge a new reputation by seizing the moment to reform our approach, to redefine our relationship and to create a new paradigm of military industry cooperation. The command plan calls for value for money. That will come naturally if we get this right. But collectively, we must want more. We share a mutual goal to lead the way, and I believe we have a unique opportunity to do that. Some of you may be thinking that what I've said is all very good, as the UK's armed forces reconfigure for a so-called return to contingency. The RAF will be increasingly inactive and its engagement with the defence aerospace sector stagnate or drop off. You could not be more wrong. As the Chief of Air Staff pointed out last year, we are not returning to contingency. We've never been away. Since 1991, the RAF has participated in well over 50 operations and arguably it has been the major service contributor in about two-thirds of them. That's a mean of two to three contingencies per year, but of course they've not unfolded in such a convenient, uniform pattern over that time period. The grass gradient is increasing, and sharply, because UK air power increasingly offers the nation credible and affordable political choice in times of our national and global crises. In giving this a lecture in 2011, Simon Bryant talked of the Royal Air Force's need to transition in contact. He was, of course, principally referring to a transition of Future Force 2020 in the context of operations over Afghanistan. Today, I'm reinforcing that message as we conduct air operations over Iraq against the so-called Islamic State and contribute to NATO's air policing mission over the Baltic states in the face of a resurgent Russia. Success on current operations will always be the RAF's number one priority, but preparing for future operations will inevitably continue to be a very close second. My message to the defence aerospace industry is this. UK air power is highly relevant 
to UK thinking as evidenced by current events. It is likely to be so for the future. It is a product worth cherishing, nurturing and renewed with conceptual and monetary investment. The RAF will be on that journey with you. Now I'll now move on to my second theme, in which I'll examine the challenges that we must overcome if we are to successfully reach our shared goal of world-leading deliverer of air power. The future defence and security environment is going to be more complex, offer less certainty, and generate a greater number of diversity challenges. Changes in the economic climate will be significant as the tectonic plates of global defence aerospace industry start to shift and throw up new operating models and players. It is my contention that we would be well advised to prepare together for these challenges and we must swiftly engage ourselves in that work right now. I'd like to start this section by briefly recapping the UK government's thinking about its approach to security and defence because this provides an important context for what follows. The National Security Strategy of 21, a strong Britain in an age of uncertainty, states that the UK is to use all our national capabilities to build Britain's prosperity, extend our nation's influence in the world, and strengthen our security. Collectively, security, prosperity, and freedom constitute the UK's national interest, with the UK's strategic objectives defined as ensuring a secure and resilient UK and shaping a stable world. The review laid out the integrated UK approach and the military means for their delivery. Meanwhile, the Building Stability Overseas Strategy of 2011 focused on early warning, a rapid crisis prevention and response, and for medium term, investing in upstream prevention. While the International Defence Engagement Strategy of the 2013 set out how all defence activity, short of combat operations, will be prioritised to focus our engagement efforts on those countries which are most important to our national interests and where we're most likely to achieve the desired effect. Why am I covering this? Because it's my firm belief that UK air power has a central contribution to delivering the outcomes required by these various strategies as part of an integrated approach across government. As the national security strategy states, security and prosperity form a virtuous circle. I'm interested in the former and I suspect defence industry you the latter, and hence a shared goal. Now, UK defence thinking about the future security and defence landscape is led by the Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre. They've recently completed work on a series of three documents which will no doubt inform the National Security Strategy and Strategic Defence and Security Review. Global Strategic Trends takes a thematic and geographic view on the landscape in 2045. It foresees a more complex and uncertain world with change occurring in many areas at a faster and faster rate as growing population competes for fewer and fewer resources. In the area of military capabilities, for example, it considers the possibility that advances in technology are likely to lead to increasingly effective non-lethal capabilities and increase the precision of weapons, suggesting that this is likely to alter the nature of conflict. The second document, The Future Operating Environment, looks out to 2035. It seeks to describe the characteristics of 2035 operating environment in order to provide evidence-based insights that can inform future defence capability development. It too is thematic, not prescriptive, and considers the possibility of an environment where the proliferation of defence technology amongst potential adversaries means that our key systems will be vulnerable to technical exploitation or capability overmatch. 
It adds that technological change will accelerate, serving to highlight inadequacies in less adaptable procurement processes within defence. And very long term, inflexible equipment plans will no longer be sustainable. If these characteristics develop, then they are very significant for both of us. The problem is we can't wait to see if these characteristics develop as postulated, because when they do, it will already be too late. Thus, we must both act now to prepare our likely future. The third document is a series of environmental concept primers, air, maritime and land, plus for the first time a view of the UK's joint forces, for example cyber. These primers will provide the starting point for four future operating concepts to be published in 2016. What the primers offer now is a first look at how the UK's armed forces might be configured to fight in the 2030 to 35 timeframe. Each one builds on all the previous documents that I've covered. Although our work is ongoing, for the air environment, you can expect an operating concept which embraces rapid and global delivery of precision effect that fully exploits all the basing options available to UK air power and which is underpinned by a robust adaptive command and control posture. In particular, the probable requirement for air power to fight to win in a fully contested electromagnetic environment where physical access may also be contested, is something that will occupy us and, of course, you. Now, I've offered you the government approach and defence's view of its most likely future operating environment. But what's being said about the global defence industry by independent analysts? A comprehensive 2014 report by the Centre for New American Security examined the factors that were shaping the global defence industry. Their findings on creative disruption do not make pleasant reading. The report concludes that no one doubts that globalisation, declining post-war defence budgets and the increased pace of technological change are combining to reshape the defence industry. It then added, the convergence of emerging trends in the technological, geopolitical and business environments threatens to profoundly disrupt the global defence industry. This is a stark warning. Globalisation cataclysmically fueled by advances in information and communications technology has led to defence industry rationalisation and downsizing. There are no defence companies in the top 20 industrial research and development spenders worldwide. In fact, if the top five US defence contractors added together their combined spend, it would still put defence not in the top 20 list. And the market capitalization of the big five US defense contractors is approximately half of that of Apple. Where military technology once drove the commercial sector, the reverse is now increasingly true. And that paradigm is expected to have shifted permanently by 2030. Consider when it last was that key military technologies flowed to the commercial sector. The internet in 1991, the global positioning system in 1995 perhaps. You could make a contemporary case for unmanned air systems, but arguably the idea was barely born and implemented by the military before the commercial sector grabbed the lead. The Federal Aviation Administration predicts that there will be 30,000 drones, their words, not ours, ours are remotely piloted air systems, in the US sky by 2020, and that 10,000 of these may be directly supporting law enforcement activity. And finally, shrinking defence budgets among Western militaries has reduced the number of platforms and equipment that can be purchased and the number of people that can be retained to exploit them. If you accept this analysis, and this is a view shared by many other independent analysts, 
what are the thematic challenges that this emerging global context presents us with? Because in this context, the UK defence aerospace industry is not immune from, goal, uh, from global trends. It seems to me that these challenges will be aggregated into three broad themes of affordability, technology exploitation, and human capability management. There is arguably a fourth, culture, but I'll return to this aspect in part three when we discuss the how. Let's start with affordability. The challenge is how to get more from what we've got already, and probably for longer than we did before. Technology advances rapidly, and procurement programs take time to deliver. The net result is an increasing risk that platforms and equipment, while perhaps even meeting performance, cost and time goals, are not the best solution to the contemporary security paradigm when they enter operational service. Even global collaboration programs are expensive to participate in and unit costs remain relatively high. Collaboration does, however, offer acquisition efficiencies through economies of scale. It is now being reported in the US that the Department for Defense is likely to move away from a fixed cost contract and towards a cost plus model for the Air Force's long range strike bomber program. At the recent launch of the US Better Buying Power Acquisition Strategy, Frank Kendall, the Pentagon Undersecretary for Acquisition, announced that regardless of who wins the long-range strike bomber competition, future platform upgradability will be built in from the outset, and the right to provide these upgrades will also be competed. This is probably a direct response to the current financial context and recognition of the need to act collegiately in support of the US defense aerospace industry when doing so. The challenge of technology exploitation is, relatively, uh, is related to affordability. We need to find a smart way where we can collectively maintain military capability over an extended period of time and offer the RAF maximum value for money for every taxpayer's pound that we spend while offering the UK defence industry sufficient potential for a viable and sustainable future. Spiral development paths may be one way we can do this. This can be done on the system or the platform or both. Small platform numbers favour spiral development of the system whereas greater overall platform numbers offer the opportunity to do both. But judging when the optimum time to see spiral development is reached will be key if the approach itself is not to become artificially limiting a constraint on capability growth and the driver of increased costs. Evolving existing relationships and developing new relationships with new, non-traditional participants will be important for air forces and the defence aerospace industry alike. These relationships will need to be underpinned by an effective strategy if the community is to act decisively at the right time to exploit technological developments. One way might be for the Royal Air Force to adopt a lead, watch and follow strategy. For some technologies, only the military can lead primary investment in order to achieve a disruptive effect. However, for the majority of emerging technologies, research and development will occur independently and the military can follow these technologies in order to adapt and adopt related capabilities. But where it is not clear an uh, expectation pathway or such a pathway is unaffordable, the military can continue to watch until the solution becomes more favourable. Such proactive horizon scanning might then allow the adoption of the philosophy as civil as possible as military as necessary, to fully assess the implications of technological developments and improve affordability while retaining an advantage for UK air power. The final challenge is one that this audience will recognise well. 
One needs enough people with the right skills to drive technology developments and to identify their credible exploitation pathways for military purposes in the information age. Whether you subscribe to STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, acronym, or the latest iteration of STEAM, where the A means art and design, there is a global problem. I won't labour the point, but merely turn to the latest Engineering UK analysis to highlight the scale. Their 2015 report suggests that although 5.4 million engineers are employed across 600,000 enterprises, the UK will need a further 1.8 million engineers by 2022. The conclusion is very clear. Either the UK must double the number of people undertaking STEM graduate courses or increase by 50% the number of graduates who actually enter the engineering industry if it is to balance demand and supply. Before I close this section, I want to briefly bring some of the themes into a sharp RAF focus for you. The issues I will highlight are the ones that we are dealing with today, not tomorrow. They span from equipment capability to organisational agility and human capability. I'll start with a significant issue of the electromagnetic spectrum. Since 2005, successive governments have been examining how the UK could derive economic and social benefit from a more effective and efficient utilisation of the spectrum. In 2014, it set itself a goal of freeing up some 500 megahertz of the UK's public access to the spectrum below 5 gigs, an area that's so-called sweet spot for commercial wireless and broadband use. This will be the home of 5G. However, 190 megs of that 500 megahertz is currently used by the Royal Air Force's E3D Sentry and is to be released for commercial use this year. Although there are safeguards within the process to preserve assured public access, the broad future direction of travel is certain. Public and commercial users will need to use the spectrum in a more agile way than we do now. The RAF is comfortable with this approach. I see it as analogous to the introduction of managed danger areas in the late 90s, where UK airspace is handed backwards and forwards between military and commercial users as demand requires. The approach is now second nature to us, but the introduction of spectrum pricing, which means that in future the MOD will need to pay a sensible market rate for its own use of the spectrum, is less clear to us. The driver is unequivocal. The spectrum is hugely valuable. In 2011, it was estimated that the spectrum contributed £52 billion to the UK economy, broadly similar to the UK's aviation sector and almost quadruple its maritime sector. The contribution was up 25% by 2006 and the government's vision that this will be doubled by 2020. Thus, the challenge for the Royal Air Force is technical and we must understand the detailed issues as we are the biggest spectrum user in MOD and the government has not allocated any proceeds from the spectrum sale as a potential user offset. With global spectrum management and pricing being considered by the United Nations, the impact is potentially very significant for a global air force. Implementing the recommendations of Sir Charles Haddon Cave's independent inquiry into the loss of Nimrod XV-230 continues to present challenges. Although the required accountability and organisational changes have been fully implemented and the Military Aviation Authority and duty holder process are working well, some issues remain for us to work through. We have created a very good oversight system, but one that offers little diversion or interpretation from a UK approach. You will recall, for example, the media interest surrounding the introduction to service of the Rivet Joint platform. Demanding appropriate assurance is correct, 
but sometimes providing the necessary evidence trail is difficult. And sometimes it is the protection of intellectual property rights that serves to frustrate. These regulatory challenges consume much resource. From a capability perspective, implementing Lord Levine's defence reform recommendations, where much of the UK's defence capability planning function was dis disaggregated from the MOD head office to the single services, has been equally challenging. The RAF was required to grow rapidly its technical and acquisition competence to fulfil this role. It's an ongoing task, but one we are now just about on top of. However, it has taken time and resource to get a fully functioning capability planning system in place and represents more transitioning contact. Turning briefly to the RAF's human capability challenges, on the face of it, the service is fully manned. It pretty much is. But the problem we face is twofold. We don't have the right mix of suitably qualified and experienced personnel, or SQUEP, that we need for today, nor do we know what particular skill sets we will need for tomorrow. The recently published strategy for people is a good start, but generating and implementing a clear delivery plan is more difficult. It is a problem across defence, of course, but arguably one uh, at its most uh, acute in the technologically focused service such as the RAF. And of course, we are competing with industry for the brightest and best of the STEM graduates. A few examples. How do we sustain the aircrew cadre when there are fewer platforms for them to fly and only single-seat cockpits, yet a plethora of staff jobs for them to fill? The new employment model is being implemented, but how will we, the impact will be seen on the service of a peer group serving until the age of 60? And how do we ensure equity of approach across the whole force which promotes the fight as one culture we need to succeed? These are tough questions to answer. We know that at the heart of answering them is a need to be more agile and innovative in our personnel policies, and perhaps in doing so, we can help each other out more than we are currently doing in this regard. While the RAF is no longer considered by, uh, by potential recruits as offering a job for life, they perhaps should now conceive it as offering a career for life. Indeed, I'm already pursuing that theme internally very aggressively. Instead of competing for STEM graduates, why can't we cooperate? For example, it should be possible to have a flexible career profile where the precious commodity of engineers move almost seamlessly between the military and its defence aerospace industry and vice versa, and perhaps on multiple occasions. We would both gain from such an approach. Indeed, US followers will have noticed that Ashton Carter, the new US Defence Secretary, has directed exactly this approach to be pursued by the US military. The RAF offers a very attractive apprenticeship scheme rated as outstanding by Ofsted in its 2015 report. Why wouldn't the defence aerospace industry welcome access to this cadre? Experience in industry offers a broadened engineer. Why wouldn't we welcome that experience in our service? Such ideas are the real crux of the whole force challenge. There is now much work to do on building the required flexibility into the future terms and conditions of service for the UK's armed forces. It is clear that what might work for one service may be inappropriate for another, and yet our personnel policies are largely derived and set centrally. In drawing this section to a close, my message is that the RAF's challenges are complex, diverse, numerous, and exist on many levels. But our issues are, by association, largely your issues. To overcome them, my plea to the UK defence aerospace industry is to trust us and work with us as one, sharing our respective ideas about the future without fear or prejudice and, with our government support, 
reinvigorate and demonstrate that the UK is a genuine world leader in this field. A leader not only for its progressive approach in the cooperation between UK's air power and the defence aerospace industry, but also in the quality of the value for money and capable products it provides, and the skillful way in which they are exploited by the nation's air power. I believe that it is only by taking a shared journey that we can fulfil the world leader goal. We have a good starting point, and now is the time to capitalise on that fact. Now, you will have your own perspective on the challenges that I've outlined and may agree or otherwise with the RS view of them. But where I think we have overwhelming consensus, including across government, is that they exist and a viable solution needs to be found. The Defence Growth Partnership, the government-sponsored initiative that is led by UK-based industry, is, I believe, an emerging route to providing us with potential solutions. It is therefore in our shared interest to make it work, and work well, for our shared future depends on it. We require a solution that is progressive, inclusive and ambitious, and it is my contention that, taken at face value, the DGP offers such a solution. So in the time that remains, let us take a tour de raison of the Defence Growth Partnership and examine it from all angles. Why do we need it? What is it supposed to do? What can we do to aid its chances of success? The DGP launched in December 12, and it's early that year that I want to look first inwards to the rules, towards the views of this society for my starting point. The society published an insightful paper in 2012 entitled The Future of UK Defence Aerospace. The issue at hand, the paper stated, was the failure to recognise the importance of UK defence aerospace industry to the economy and to our nation's defence capabilities. Under Professor Haywood's guidance, the Air Power Group concluded that there were three areas in which the UK was failing. It did not understand the security and economic case for supporting the industry. It was not investing in technology, thus allowing skills and interest in them to wane. And it did not realise that systems integration for airframe, sensors and propulsion was key to overall success. I don't have time to expand here, but I commend it to you as an excellent read and something which offers a ready-made validation framework against which to assess the DGP. But does the society's view accord with those of the market analysts? In 2013, McKinsey's report on the outlook for global defence aerospectors to 2015, which drew on views of industry executives, was pessimistic. It saw a shrinking market where companies would need to search for new markets to find growth opportunities from Brazil, the Middle East, and the US considered to be the most beneficial. Many said their companies were considering a divergence towards the more lucrative commercial aerospace sector. Within their own sector, provision of support services was seen as significantly more profitable than equipment sales. And only unmanned systems and cyber offered potential in this area. Thus, defence aerospace industry leaders unanimously concluded that the nature of the industry was changing and that their companies must change the way that they do business. Changes in government defence procurement, greater transparency, simplification and faster processes, more dialogue and collaboration were all on the wish list. I note also that pilots as decision makers was one of their concerns. Rest of my case. Even as far back as 2009, when PwC took a close look at UK manufacturing, their messages on aerospace and defence sector were similar to McKinsey's. The UK needs an affordable plan that allows industry and government to plan for the future. The UK government must continue to invest in R&D and skill sets. And the UK must develop a home market strategy for UK-based companies. 
PwC's message was that competition would be tougher in the future and the UK would have to fight hard to retain its historic position in the sector. And so it is proving to be the case. Fortunately for me, I note that PwC didn't cite UK pilot decision-makers as a concern. KPMG provided the contemporary view looking out to 2017. They stressed the need for industry players to explore new partnerships and increase collaboration. Innovate in everything from products to operations and create strategies to cope with disruptive complexity. KPMG's UK expert added that UK aerospace players may still have some heavy lifting ahead as the UK sector transforms its traditional UK-based operating model towards new global markets. Thus, the analyst message has been surprisingly consistent over a number of years and all reinforce the view of this, this society and all views arguably point towards something like the DGP. For those in the audience not familiar with the DGP, a brief recap on what it is before I examine what it's supposed to do. Its genesis with the Aerospace Growth Partnership established in 2010, described as a strategic partnership between government and industry to secure the future of UK aerospace industry for the next 20 years and beyond. The aim is to tackle barriers to growth, boost exports, and grow the number of high-value jobs in the UK. The DGB GGP is a defence-focused subsidiary of the Airspace Growth Partnership, which focused on the commercial aerospace sector and was launched in the autumn of 2013. The DGP embraces government in the form of BIS, UKTI and MOD, with 16 leading industry bodies and many other small and medium enterprises. The strategic vision document, Securing Prosperity, articulates its vision as to secure thriving UK defence sector, delivering security, growth and prosperity for the nation. The strategy for its delivery is to take a fresh and ambitious approach through a joint commitment from government and defence industry to work together to develop new opportunities by building on UK's strengths in air capabilities and intelligence systems and deliver growth through innovative and tailored solutions for customers around the globe. I don't think any of us would disagree with the ambition. It seems to offer a framework to meet the concerns I outlined at the start of this section. Its success, however, will be defined by its implementation. Almost a year ago, government told us how this was to be broadly done in its Delivering Growth Implementation Plan. The plan focuses on five areas. First, and most prominent, is the establishment of a UK Defence Solutions Centre to create a new collaborative environment within which to identify innovative and tailored solutions. The next three establish the approach. The Defence and Security Organisation within UKTI will strengthen its focus on the needs of customers around the globe. Industry's capability will be strengthened by developing the value chain, investing in technology and building skills for the future, and the launch of new growth opportunities for building on national strengths and air capabilities and intelligence systems, including the launch of a new UK Centre for Maritime Intelligence Systems. The final area is resourcing financial and manpower equivalent of some £30 million split 50-50 to drive forward the DGP towards full operating capability by mid-2015, i.e. now until 2017. Again, I think we would all agree that the high-level plan seems sound. Its success, though, will undoubtedly be defined by the actions which accompany the words in the years ahead. Last November, the House of Commons Defence Committee announced that it was launching an inquiry into the DGP and it, and it is on evidence submitted to that inquiry, which I'll now briefly draw for an indication of process. 
uh, of progress. Arguably, three main themes emerge uh, from those involved in its delivery today. This is a complex initiative involving multiple complex stakeholders. Its main benefits will be felt in the long term. And the DGP is a unique approach to collaboration between a government and its defence industry. The implication is that a degree of strategic patience is required as DGP success will likely be measured in decades, not months. The next milestone will be publication of a detailed version of its implementation plan to coincide with the DSEI exhibition in this September. The Defence Solutions Centre has been established at Farnborough and is working hard on its task. The Centre for Maritime Intelligence Systems has been established in the Solent area and was described by Steve Wadey, DGP co-chair, as the most mature project that they are running in the DGP. It was cited as a good example of how £4 million, a 12-month project, has benefited from the realignment of industry, regional and government investment in S&T, and the latter by the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, or DSTL. But defence industry observers, while acknowledging the themes and potential benefits of the DGP that are being put forward, have asked some demanding questions of their own. This society's evidence, for example, highlighted an unpromising future beyond the current generation of UK fast jet platforms, the F-35 Lightning being a US aircraft, and questioned whether a sole focus on RPAS, remotely piloted air systems, could sustain the UK defence aerospace industry in the 2030 timeframe. It also challenged the government to hold defence S&T investment at 1.2% of MOD's budget, approximately £375 million. This message was echoed by Prospect, the union for 11,000 professionals in the MOD and defence industry. Academia cautioned that the action plan due in September must demonstrate how the DGP will achieve its intended effects and identify what budget is required to support it, noting that without both, the DGP is no more than good intentions. They also challenge the ability of the MOD and industry to demonstrate that they have compatible knowledge, skills and behaviours to make the DGP a success. Let me now turn to MOD interaction with the DGP and more specifically that of the RAF. In essence, the UK government faces a difficult balancing act because of the unique national security nature of the defence industry and therefore the unique relationship that must exist between industry and government. In the context of the GGP, government is simultaneously a strategic partner through biz to the defence industry and through MOD, it is a customer of the defence industry's products and services. The vehicle for the MOD and RAF interaction for the DGP is one and the same, the Customer Advisory Group, which is part of the Defence Solutions Centre. This Customer Advisory Group allows Head Office, Joint Forces Command and each of the single services to offer a customer perspective which might influence the work of the DGP. For the RAF, this responsibility falls within my capability area at Headquarters Air Command, and any customer views that we put forward will be done in a way that fully respects the principle of fair and open competition outlined in the National Security Through Technology White Paper of 2012. From our experience to date with the Customer Advisory Group, we feel it is a forum which is working quite well. Fundamentally, I see the RAF's relationship to an industry-led DGP as one of the support for its vision of strong, competitive and vibrant defence industry, which can only be beneficial to the RAF as a customer. I think it would be appropriate at this point to offer a perspective about other forums where government, its military and the defence industry interact. 
The Nightworks Initiative set out in 2003 was held up as a good example of behavioural maturity by Sir Brian Burridge, chair of the DGP's technological, uh, Technology and Enterprise Workstream, in his evidence to the committee's inquiry. His point is that as a collective, we've already been developing and practising the good behaviours and skills that we need to make the DGP a success. It is perhaps important that I cover the distinction between DGP, Nightworks and DSTL. DSTL is an MOD trading fund dedicated to science and technology in defence and security field and provides specialist services to the Ministry of Defence and other areas of government. Nightworks describes itself as a decision support mechanism for the MOD. It is a partnership between the MOD, including DSTL, and industry, which operates predominantly in the pre-competition stages of capability acquisition. It is perhaps no surprise that the defence industry participants in Nightworks and DGP are one and the same. The critical difference is that DSTL and Nightworks directly support the MOD, whereas DGP, although formed by many of the same entities as Nightworks, is an initiative to boost national prosperity based on increased defence exports, and hence it is a biz lead within government. Of course, there will be synergies between all three, as already evidenced by the realignments of DSTL's S&T investment in support of the Centre for Maritime Intelligence Systems. My view is that Nightworks, DSTL and DGP can be entirely complementary, each entity benefiting from the work done by others. The trick will be to share information in a timely manner and ensure that we do not duplicate activity. In the time that remains, I should like to offer a few words on areas of existing capability development, where the Royal Air Force, its likely prime customer, has an interest in working closely with the DGP for mutual benefit. The first and perhaps most obvious is in the field of air launch weapons. The Teen Complex Weapons Initiative is, in my view, a good example of where we've got it right. By working collaboratively on a number of weapon projects concurrently, it has pursued a modular approach aimed at reducing the number of different weapons in service by migrating to a smaller number of weapon families and variants with optimum modality and reuse of subsystems and technology to give better value for money. I think the weapons area is something that the UK has demonstrably excelled in, exerting a nuanced sovereign leadership, particularly across European defence markets. This can only be good for UK defence industry in the medium to long term. One area which would definitely be of interest to the RAF is development of a multi-weapon-bearing interface to allow many types of weapons to be hung off just one type of aircraft weapon interface. The RAF's success on operations has, in part, been down to the quality of the weapons provided by UK defence aerospace industry. ASRAM, Storm Shadow and dual-mode seeker Brinstone are in service today and Meteor's entry in service is now on the horizon. UK defence industry weapons are, of course, showcased globally by the Royal Air Force, as this recently declassified video clip demonstrates. And in the first clip, dual-mode brimstone demonstrating its low collateral and working in an uh, urban environment. The second clip demonstrates the ability of the weapon to engage a manoeuvring target and to destroy that target. The third clip 
demonstrates the ability of the weapon to target first by laser and then when close in use its millimetric radar. This is a tank in a wood and if you would just watch the top right hand corner of the screen when it goes white. That tank has been killed. So the next area where I assess that the DGP and the Royal Air Force to have a shared interest is in the Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance, or ISR. The UK Joint Forces Command has recently conducted its, uh, sorry, concluded the Air ISR optimization study and its output will now inform the SDSR process. I touched earlier upon the sort of things it might be considering, but to expand briefly, I cite former Secretary of State Philip Hammond's letter to the Chair of House of Commons Defence Committee in July 2014. The Air ISTAR optimization study has identified key risks, prioritised capability gaps against a range of policy-driven scenarios, and conducted an initial assessment of potential solutions to, those to close those gaps. He reported that the study has determined there remain significant capability issues to address in land and maritime surveillance and subsurface wide area surveillance to 2030 and beyond. In addition, we, the government, need to consider air surveillance and air command and control capabilities as the Sentry aircraft reaches the end of expected service life. Commentating on the potential future air I-Star force mix, Mr Hammond wrote... There are a number of technologies which will mature around 2025 that could provide more flexible force mix options, possibly at a significant reduced cost, adding they include platforms which will provide ultra-persistence in flight, the ability to process data away from the actual aircraft, and the use of space-based technologies. I was therefore encouraged to read the ISR example cited by Sir Brian Burridge in his evidence to the DGP inquiry. He said... There is some very advanced technology in complex ISR proving that we can identify gestating technology upstream and pull it across the valley of death, which is the area that exists between something that has been well demonstrated theoretically, possibly in a university research department, and a prototype on the bench, which is the difficult area. On this basis alone, it would appear that the RAF will have cause to engage the DGP through its customer advisory group in the near future. Now, these are just two areas of interest for the RAF, but there are many others. For example, technological developments have brought space conceptually closer to us all. But what is clear, the UK lead in niche areas of space capabilities has almost gone unnoticed. This offers many possibilities from exploitive uh, use of small satellites, perhaps deployed from aircraft, to innovative applications involving SpaceX platforms to development of UK spaceports. Creativity, imagination and innovation await us. I note that this society's 2014 paper on UK space policy, the MOD was given credit for developing a wider appreciation of space and its functions in a 21st century defence and security environment. But you also had the final word on UK space policy that over the last five years there was much promise but we could try harder. My message to you is that the RAF is trying harder on space matters and that we do recognise its growing significance. Another area in which the DGP and RAF have shared interest is in the provision of aircrew training and, specifically, the advanced use of simulation and synthetics to deliver that training. The quality of lifeline training has been such that it's been copied around the world on a global scale. It is something that the RAF does very well. However, we are now at a crossroads. In the future, not only will we have fewer platforms in which to undertake lifeline training events, 
but the complexity of the future operating environment and the capabilities of the platforms will mean to, that to train fully, particularly to mission-rehearsed demanding scenarios, synthetic environments will become the norm and lifeline training the new niche. This is an opportunity as well as a threat. The RAF will require a synthetic training environment which blends the live and virtual to provide an enriched training experience. We're already doing it today for advanced flying training courses at RAF Valley. The Royal Navy is doing it to train its observers. The next step is to take it to the front line and take it up a notch or two. This will require us to think and act differently, and the defence aerospace industry also. I'm pleased to note that synthetic operational training is one of the DGP's immediate interest areas. The Air Battle Space Training Centre at Royal Air Force Waddington has given us a glimpse of the art of the possible as far as frontline is concerned, but its successor, the Defence Operational Training Capability Air, will need to go much further, and it will need to be easily upscalable to connect to joint and combined. Some will merely see less flying training as a threat, but I only see it as an opportunity for the RAF and the Defence Aerospace Industry to help to redefine the new global standard in air power training. Before I conclude, I want to turn to Sir Sidney Cam, the man in whose name I give this lecture today. What would he have made of all of this? Would he have recognised the challenge? Would he have approved in the way in which the UK is trying to solve it? Sir Sidney died in 1966. That year in the UK, the first cross-channel hovercraft service was launched. An Oberon-class submarine was the last ever warship launched from Chatham Dockyard, and British Rail began operating electric passenger train services between London and Liverpool. Elsewhere, in 1966, the Vietnam War was raging, NASA's second and third Apollo missions were launched, from a former, and a former actor called Ronald Reagan was elected the governor of California. The overarching context was, of course, the Cold War. The UK armed forces were then an all-volunteer force. Sir Sidney would simply not have foreseen the whole force era of which I talk today. The British aircraft industry had reduced in size and was consolidating itself into fewer, larger companies after the outcome of the 1957 Sandys Defence Review. So perhaps he would have recognised some of the parallels in today's challenges to those he saw in the defence aerospace industry then. So Sidney would, however, have fitted right into DGP. He was the son of a carpenter, and hard work, accuracy and quality were very much to the fore in his approach. He was an innovator, helping to design the distinctive Hawker metal tubular construction in 1925. Today, he would recognise DSTL's work on advanced manufacturing techniques. He was a shrewd investor, delaying Hawker's move to the new field of jet propulsion until the timing was right. The Seahawk and Hunter was the reward. Today, he would recognise the value-added of Nightworks. And he was a perfectionist. His designs evolved logically but effectively over time. Today, he would recognise the principle of spiral development that might underpin a future DGP success. I don't know if Sir Sidney Cam would have approved of what we are doing, but I'm pretty sure that he would have been in the thick of the DGP action and also pushing the whole force along. So, to conclude, air and space power has evolved rapidly in just over a century of aviation. The world's oldest independent air force and its supporting defence aerospace industry has been at the forefront of much of that evolution, and we should not forget that fact as we are considering today what we can do better tomorrow. But standing still is not in our nature, which is instead to consistently 
and constantly look forward and consider how emerging technologies can be exploited for decisive military effect in and from the air environment. That is why air power continues to be a credible military option and an attractive political choice. Today, the Royal Air Force is reconfiguring to meet its requirements in Future Force 20. The transition is being done in contact with the RAF involved in around 57 operations since the end of the Cold War alone. In fact, it is difficult to recall a time when it hasn't been in contact during that period. Recapitalization of much of the force's equipment has gone well, although there is still some work to do, particularly in growing combat air mass and replacing airborne I-Star capabilities. Regular personnel have reduced to 33,000 and will fall to 31,500 by 2020 as the whole force era, regulars, reserves, civil servants and contractors begins to dominate how global UK military operations are delivered. Affordability is both the catalyst and necessity. Manpower is an expensive resource, as is equipment, in an austere financial climate. This is naturally impacting on the global defence industry too. Consequently, there is now an urgent imperative for air and space power to work even more closely with defence industry in the second century if we are both to continue to prosper as we did in the first. So what of the future? Security, prosperity and freedom are key areas for UK's national interest. The Ministry of Defence and the UK Armed Forces, like all government departments, will be required to contribute to their delivery. But analysis suggests that the future defence and security landscape will be more complex, with less certainty, but provide more diverse challenges. Globalisation is the catalyst and rapid advancement of technology which proliferates widely, threatens to leave Western militaries overmatched. For the defence industry, which must react to this shifting landscape, the challenges are arguably threefold. Better affordability, improved technology exploitation and securing sufficient human capital to deliver it. A constrained defence budget will inevitably mean fewer numbers of equipment and increased unit costs, and if unchecked, a downward spiral of decline. New technology is increasingly exploited first in the commercial sector before flowing to the military, reversing a long-standing trend. The defence industry must therefore develop a new exploitation strategy if the sector is to stay ahead of the technology curve. And it must do all of this facing a global STEM, STEM skill shortage. The UK alone is estimated to need an additional 1.2 million engineers by 2022. The RAF is not immune from this human capital challenge as it, it too must compete for the best STEM graduates, all while it implements a plethora of organisational and technical changes mandated of it. The implication is that the service and defence aerospace industry would be better off if they worked together to solve these multiple challenges for the journey each is now on is effectively one and the same. Neither can solve their problems in isolation. The Defence Growth Partnership, a strategic collaboration between government and industry, is a solution on the table. It is an export-led initiative to secure the future of the UK's defence industry and benefit the UK economy. The MOD and UK Armed Forces will be one of its customers. Two and a half years since its launch, the words of the DGP vision, strategy and high-level implementation plan are being turned into action. Most noticeably, the Defence Solutions Centre, the engine room of the DGP, is up and running and working on its detailed delivery plans, which are to be published, as I say, this autumn. 
progressive, inclusive and ambitious, the DGP appears to address the major concerns of this society and market analysts that predate it. But some, including this society, are worried that the level of investment in science and technology is too low. Others suggest that without a detailed plan in pace and its identified future budget secured, the DGP is no more than good intentions. Some question the culture of government and the defence industry can change sufficiently to allow good behaviours to flourish that the DGP will need for its success. Insiders counter that, that they're already doing it. The RAF supports the initiative. It can see the potentially synergistic benefit of the interaction and alignment of activity between the MOD-facing entities of DSTL, Nightworks and the BIS-facing DGP. The service will therefore fully commit to work with the DGP's customer advisory group and we can see some opportunities for mutual benefit, particularly in the area of weapons, ISR, space and synthetics. But we recognise that the DGP is also a complex, unique and long-term initiative and the leap of faith that represents for government and defence industry alike will need to be underpinned by a dose of strategic patience. Its success will likely be measured over decades, not months, as the DGP is part of a national industrial strategy in action. Many nations are watching us. This lecture's central thesis was that of relationship between UK air power and its defence aerospace industry in the whole force era is now truly symbiotic. If either fails, they both fail, and the UK loses its competitive advantage on many fronts. What therefore might success look like for a DGP? In the evidence of the Defence Committee, most considered success to be defined by markets that BIS saw as an increased export presence, evidence of greater collaboration and innovation, and being more competitive through the whole supply chain. Philip Dunn felt the DGP would, have be, would be a tremendous success in ten years, if in 10 years' time the UK continues to have the second largest defence industry base in the world. The industry DGP co-chair suggested that the ultimate measure of success is increasing the UK's global market share. But the MOD's interpretation of DGP success will, of course, be viewed through a different lens. It views success in terms of greater affordability, better value for money, and greater interoperability with partners and allies. As a potential customer of DGP, but also ultimate guarantor of national security, the MOD will have a difficult dilemma to ponder, namely when it must choose to protect UK operational advantage and freedom of action because such decisions always involve a balance of risk and opportunity costs. For the RAF, it will be straightforward. Either we will have the equipment we need to fight and win in contested environments, or we will not. It's that simple. I can personally reassure the industry partners that I'll do my best to ensure the DGP's overall success. Thus, this matters to the nation for reasons of economic prosperity, growth and security. The market analysts suggest that over the next eight years, £82 billion of global military spending will occur in areas where the UK defence industry base considers itself to be particularly strong, air capabilities and intelligence systems. The UK's share of global market in 2013 was £9.8 billion, and in the words of the DGP's industry co-chair, there is room for improvement. President, society members and guests, thank you very much for your attention.
from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.